Welcome back to the Thermo Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Miller, and today I have on the podcast, Mr. Jay Feldman. Um, I'm super excited for this episode. Some of the things that we talk about are the misconceptions and some of the um, misunderstandings around adaptation and hormesis. Um, why our adaptation to something doesn't necessarily make it beneficial, um, you know, adapting to something for survival versus thriving, um, why adaptations to stress are harmful and aren't responsible for um, some of the benefits from things like exercise. Um, we talk about a little bit about the epigenetic factors. Um, we talk a little bit about being a fat burner um, versus using the oxidative and glucose metabolism. Um, so this is a very dense episode filled with information. Um, I love talking to Jay, so I'm super excited for y'all to dive into this one. So let's get into it. How's it going today, guys? Welcome back to the Thermo Diet Podcast. Today I have on the podcast again, Mr. Jay Feldman. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm great, Jayden. How are you? Doing very well. Um, so for anybody who might not know who you are out there, you mind kind of get them, giving them a quick background story? Yeah. Yeah. So I, like many other people who end up, you know, trying to share a lot of health information and trying to help other people get better, you know, started with myself and, uh, you know, I was, health became a real focus for me starting basically, uh, with fitness where I was trying to improve my athletic performance. I wanted to look good. And that kind of took me down the dieting rabbit hole, uh, and nutrition rabbit hole. And I ended up making a lot of mistakes along the way, falling into low carb and a lot of caloric restriction, trying to stay lean. And, and, uh, yeah, after finding a lot of things that didn't work and ended up making me feel a lot worse, uh, I kind of, you know, through that exploration and trying to figure out what was wrong, I ended up coming across, uh, what would a lot of people call the bioenergetic view of health and it kind of changed everything for me. And, uh, now, you know, I watch how much it changes the lives of other people. And, uh, you know, I think it's a much better approach, of course, as we'll, as we'll talk about today. Definitely. Um, so for those who might not know, like the general perspective of the bioenergetic view, do you mind kind of giving your quick definition of that? Yeah, it's basically the view that our health is dependent on energy. Basically, that energy is the center of our health and when I say energy, I'm not talking about some sort of spiritual energy or anything like that, uh, but rather energy on, on a physiological level, the actual energy that's produced in what everyone says is the powerhouse of our cells, the mitochondria. A lot of times we'll talk about it in terms of ATP, but there's other, you know, ATP is a good kind of uh, barometer for energy, but energy can be held in, in all sorts of molecules and structural compounds. And so, yeah, it's it's looking at how basically all of our health, whether it's issues or, or kind of our ability to thrive all depends on how much energy we have on that cellular level and how everything in our environment affects us on that level. That's basically, it's a lens through which we can view everything from nutrition to exercise and sleep and medications and on from there, on from there. Definitely. So whenever we're categorizing things as far as healthy versus not healthy, anything that is not healthy would be interfering with the production or utilization of that energy, correct? Yeah, yep, exactly. And of course, that gets a little complex. It's not always that easy to determine. And as we'll talk about today, there's a lot of things that might cause a reaction that leads to you know, increased energy in the short term that doesn't necessarily mean it's helping it in the long term. So it's it can get a little bit complicated, but it's normally the that kind of immediate effect on, on that energetic level will, as you said, determine whether something's helping us or, or harming us. Definitely. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was the misconception around adaptation and hormesis. Um, so can you kind of give us a brief overview of some of the misconceptions that you've seen and experienced? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just to kind of define hormesis to start, which is a little bit tricky because there are a few different definitions. It's kind of morphed over the years to fit whatever narrative is is kind of being pushed. But initially, it was just this idea that giving a small amount of something that's very toxic, something like mercury or cadmium or radiation, would lead to a defensive reaction in an organism, and that would lead to some sort of health benefits. And this actually came about 
with a lot of industrial influence and trying to show that, you know, maybe radiation isn't as harmful as everyone's saying it is. And maybe, you know, polluting the environment or, you know, having these toxins in our food isn't such a big deal. Maybe these things are actually helping us a bit. Uh, I don't think that's the case. But anyway, from there, it's kind of morphed into this idea that anything that even if it's something that's not necessarily poisonous, uh, anything that causes any amount of stress leads to that same kind of defensive reaction and adaptation and that that's beneficial in the long term. And from there, it's, it's even morphed further to become a very generic term that just means anything that can be good in small doses and bad in big doses or vice versa. And again, I think that's another way that this definition is kind of morphed to make it sound like this is a very viable idea. Uh, but anyway, the, that second definition that anything that causes stress is a small amount of stress is beneficial is very common now. And it's applied to, uh, a lot of the low carb dieting it's applied to certain supplements like resveratrol and certain, uh, compounds like nitric oxide. And it's also applied to things like fasting and caloric restriction, where there's a lot of research and a lot of, uh, people in, in the health spaces saying that, or uh, another one is like cold thermogenesis, you know, jumping in some cold water where there's this idea that giving your body a small amount of stress leads to some sort of beneficial adaptations and makes our body stronger. And while there is some validity to it, I'll kind of explain why I don't think it's really an accurate way of looking at things and actually leads, leads us down this path of thinking that, again, anything that causes some amount of stress is beneficial because it causes stress. And I think it's, it's a relatively dangerous idea because obviously a lot of very harmful things cause stress. And so I, I think there's some important clarifications to make there as far as why something might be helping us and also be causing stress at the same time. So Definitely. Um, so one of the things that I, I had Billy Craig on an interview yesterday and I was talking to him about um, how they've seen older people who have lower metabolic rates and less energy utilization are able to live a little bit longer. Um, but he was saying that if you actually look at the amount of calories they're using per unit of mass, their metabolic mm. rate is actually phenomenally high. Um, so whenever you're looking at those studies, it's usually a little bit jaded, I guess, a little bit in its perspective. So it's kind of interesting that you touch on that. Um, but in terms of hormesis, I've always seen it in the context of, you know, adapting to uh, like things as far as a performance perspective. So, you know, being able to run a mile and then adapting to that, being able to run two miles and things like that, which obviously endurance training is the opposite of what we want. Um, but I've also seen a lot of benefits in the realm of the hormetic response to exercise, um, specifically resistance training. Um, so I would definitely like to dive into that a little bit further as far as like um, why that might not be favorable and then some of the things that we can do in place of that. Yeah. Yeah. And just to clarify too, adaptation is a part of what's considered to be hormesis or the hormetic response, but at a, we can also adapt to things that are not hormetic or, or adapt to aspects of things that are not the stress. So just for the definition sake, I would say hormesis is adapt, it's adapting to the stress itself, whereas we can also adapt to other aspects of, uh, of any sort of stimulus. So exercise is a good example there where I do think that there are benefits to exercise and those do come from adapting to that stimulus. But what I'll be arguing is that the adaptation is to certain effects that are not the stress. So when it comes to exercise, for example, you mentioned resistance training. We, when we're resistance training, we're putting tension on our musculoskeletal system, on our musculofascial system, and that causes all sorts of adaptations. And I think you can argue that in the right dose, that's beneficial. But what people are arguing kind of instead, and sometimes we'll change the training programs around this idea that it's the stress that's actually beneficial in causing those adaptations. And so we need to work out to fa failure or, you know, kind of longer is better. And, uh, you know, th th there's some other kind of details there, but there's kind of this important delineation between uh, like why it's beneficial. And again, it's maybe we'll dig into a little bit. I would argue that the stress is not the reason. What do you think that reason is? Yeah. So I think in the case of exercise, I think it is kind of those specific effects. So, and I think this is a helpful uh, delineation to make. And this is, this started with Hans Selye. He was one of the kind of preliminary researchers talking about stress. 
and our response to it and our adaptation to it. And so when he evaluated a stimulus, he basically, basically everybody at this time was aware of this idea that any stimulus would have effects that are specific to the stimulus. So exercise causes the certain tension that leads to muscle building, whereas sunlight is going to cause increased melanin production in the skin and on from there. Basically anything that we are exposed to in our environment has unique effects to that stimulus. But what he, I mean, one of the many things that he researched and discovered, but this is in regard to stress, one of the things that was most noteworthy is he determined that there was a general effect, a universal effect that all stimuli have. And this is what he called the stressor effect. And so he basically said, yes, there's unique things to exercise as far as our response to it. There's unique things to sunlight and toxins and infections. But there's also a universal component, which he called the stressor effect, which basically came down to the usage of energy. And he said that he, he coined this, or his terms here were adaptation energy. And I, I think uh, kind of evolving on that, I think it comes down to that physiological energy we were talking about earlier. But so I think it's, that's kind of this delineation we need to make is between specific effects and, and stressor effects or the usage of energy. And what he found was that when we have too much of those stressors, it causes all sorts of degeneration. And that degeneration is universal, whether it, it's too much like exposure to an infection or excessive amounts of exercise or too little nutrition, all of those things, they have specific effects, but they have this stressor effect. And when we have too much of that stress compared to the energy we have available to handle it, it causes all of this degeneration, all of these chronic health conditions that, that he um, did a pretty good job of, of mapping out. And again, with this idea of hormesis, people have taken this to say that that stress, the stressor effect is actually what's beneficial. And, and you'll hear this pretty often, which is that we're looking for certain kind of endpoints like autophagy or mitochondrial biogenesis or, uh, you know, some sort of like stimulation of mitochondrial respiration that these are or lifespan increases in lifespan that these are all signs that these are all things that happen in response to small amounts of stress, and that they're beneficial. And the way that this is done has to do basically on the physiological level with uh, it, the stress kind of comes down to a lack of energy and, and the production of reactive oxygen species. So anytime that we're lacking in energy or energy producing systems are disrupted, we have this increase in reactive oxygen species. And again, from that view of hormesis, that's why exercise is beneficial, or that's why uh, cold thermogenesis is beneficial. In, in the case of cold thermogenesis, you're activating stress that's somewhat unique to, uh, to temperature. You've got the heat shock proteins and all of that. But it all travels through this same generalized pathway that Cellier was referring to, which has to do with the production of reactive oxygen species and the activation of all of these signals that are saying that our body doesn't have energy. So AMPK is, is one of the main ones there as well. Uh, you've got the old NR, NRFs and JNKs, like all these basically inflammatory pathways, all these pathways that are activated when we're starving or when we're under considerable stress. And again, from this hormetic view, small amounts of those things lead to all these supposed benefits. It leads to autophagy, it leads to mitochondrial biogenesis, meaning you're producing more mitochondria, so you should be able to produce more energy. And with autophagy is the idea that you're clearing out kind of like damaged cells or debris. And so these are supposed to be good things. And I'm not necessarily saying that those are bad things, but I think that there are better ways to achieve them that don't require this depletion of energy, even in the short term and the stress that's caused. So do you think that there's a threshold that we can meet? And like, do you usually differentiate what would be under that threshold as eustress and then above that being distress? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. So I don't think it's a threshold problem, but I like I think it's an important thing to bring up. So there is this idea of eustress and distress, and this was these were terms that Hans Selye used. And eustress was something that was stressful but was still beneficial, and distress was something that was stressful but was overall harmful. And those are important distinctions to make. But my my problem with that language is that it makes us think that it's just the amount of stress that matters. And that's what you're saying with the threshold where it's you stress if it's below a certain threshold and it's distress if it's above a certain threshold. And I think a better way to look at it is that it's you stress or it's something that's beneficial if the specific effects of that stimulus outweigh the stressful effects. So what I would say is that the stress is always going to be harmful. Basically, we never want to be doing something that's going to disrupt our ability to produce energy 
or deplete excessive amounts of energy, drive this excessive reactive oxygen species production without enough energy. I, I'm going to say that those things are never ideal. There's always a cost there. There's always some harm there. And I think that makes sense when we zoom out a bit and think about our adaptation to that, where an adaptation to something that's harmful, it does tend to improve our ability to handle things that are harmful, but it also comes at the cost of degrading ourselves. So we're kind of more used to that. And so, so this, this idea, I guess I would say, as far as the threshold is not as far as is not related to how much stress, but rather whether these other effects of these stimuli are beneficial enough to outweigh the stressful effects. So if we were to use fasting as an example, a lot of people find benefits on fasting. And we also know that that's universally stressful. It's basically short-term starvation. And what I would say is that the people who are finding benefits from fasting are finding benefits from those specific effects. And those specific effects would be you're no longer getting any food in your digestive tract. So you're not producing any endotoxin or feeding any pathogens in your gut. So you've found a lot of relief there. Or maybe if somebody's eating a lot of foods that are relatively toxic, you know, whether it's they've got a bunch of additives and preservatives in there or a bunch of anti-nutrients or whatever it is, they're not eating those anymore. So that's going to bring some relief. Uh, so those things might lead to somebody feeling better in that case. And at the same time, they're still having that stress from the semi -star you know, the short-term starvation. But I would say if you're noticing benefits from fasting, it's most likely because those specific effects outweigh the stressful effects. And so I would say that that's a better way to look at something like you stress. Although again, I don't like the definition because it's not about the stress necessarily. But what's important about that delineation is that we don't always have to make that choice. Like we don't always have to take the bad with the good. We can have those beneficial specific effects of, of not irritating our gut and of not taking in toxins without the stressful side of fasting. So that's kind of some of the application of this, this kind of anti-hormesis idea is that you can still have a lot of those benefits from these interventions without the excessive stress. And that's kind of what you mentioned too, as far as exercise goes, where you could have resistance training versus like long-term long distance cardio. And in both of those, you're going to have some beneficial effects. You're going to have some stimulation of the muscles and they're not the same. It's a kind of a crude example, but, but in one, you're going to have excessive amounts of stress and the other, you have much less, you have much less of an energy drain. Definitely. What are some of the things that people can pay attention to, to know whether or not the benefits that they think that they're experiencing are actually beneficial to the organism? Yeah, it's a good question because, and maybe this is what you're, you're kind of getting at is that sometimes when we're doing things that are really stressful, we might feel good because we've got a lot of adrenaline coursing through our veins and that feels pretty good. It feels like we've got a lot of energy and uh, even though it is coming at, at a pretty major long-term cost. So it's not always really that easy to, to determine. Uh, you know, in the long term, we always kind of find out, but of course, it's helpful to know in the short term. There are some, some indicators that I think can be helpful. I mean, and the biggest one is how you feel, but it's not only if you have energy, but are you able to sleep, for example? So a lot of people who go to low carb and know that they have a lot of that, well, they don't know that they have adrenaline, but they feel like they've got good energy, but at the same time, they can't sleep at night. They can't stay asleep. They can't sleep through the night. They can't fall asleep. So that's a good sign of excess adrenaline. Uh, you know, of course, it's not always quite that clear cut either where when things are improving, everything is automatically better. But in general, I mean, the using any symptom that we that we would see is is helpful, you know, how well can how well is your brain functioning? Do you have kind of a calm energy or more of a manic energy? Again, are you able able to rest and relax and go to sleep? Do you have any digestive symptoms? Temperature can be another good indicator where uh, if our temperatures are elevated due to stress hormones and then we eat some carbohydrates and our temperatures go down, that's what we would see. Whereas if you don't have high stress hormones and you eat some carbohydrates, your temperature should stay the same or go up. So that can be a good indicator too. But part of the other side of this, as much as experience is really helpful, also understanding, I think the physiology is helpful too. So you have a kind of that combination there of an idea of where we should be uh, where we should, where we should be going and what we should be looking for to make sure that we are not, uh, not just feeling good because of these kind of short-term stress hormones. Definitely. 
I noticed that for me personally, whenever I kind of um, cross that line, I guess, to a little bit too much stress, my digestion is the first thing to go. Like, mm. as soon as my digestion starts to mess up, I know that I need to take a step back, examine what I'm doing, slow down, rest. Um, and then I also find that my fingers and my toes will freeze up almost immediately on a daily basis. Um, so I also, you know, watch that very, very closely. Yeah, that's a perfect indicator, hands and feet being cold, which can happen even if your temperature is relatively normal, but that's a really good sign of of stress hormones. Yeah, Definitely. Um, so do you ever take into consideration the possible epigenetic factors that come into play with hormesis as well? Yeah, so, you know, as you were saying earlier, the or hormesis and adaptation kind of go hand in hand a bit. And I think that there are some important misconceptions with adaptation too. I mean, it's kind of the same idea where it's, it's like if we adapt to something that's harmful, we'll become stronger, we'll become better at dealing with it. And again, that does tend to happen. We become, you could also say less sensitive to it. And this is very clear when you look at some of the organisms that they do these studies on. So one of the most common ones is C. elegans, which is a worm, uh, like a very, very small worm. And what they find is that when they put it under a lot of stress or small amounts of quote-unquote hormetic stress, it does live longer. It has this lifespan extension. And that's cited all the time as, as uh, support for caloric restriction or support for you know, any other sort of hormesis. And one of the really important components there that's not normally acknowledged is that C. elegans, when it's under stress, enters a, basically a hibernation state called dour. And in that hibernation state, it's not functioning like it normally would. Instead, its entire body switches towards a stress system. It starts to run on fats instead of glucose. It starts to downregulate the amount of energy it's producing very significantly. And it doesn't, it, it, I don't think it uh, moves around in the same way. It's, it's basically not even viable where it would be very hard for it to, uh, for it to survive in the wild, but because it's in, you know, in a lab, it can survive longer. So you, you have this adaptation to stress and it's allowing for extended life and you're, it's better able to deal with all these stresses, but that's because it's not really living. I mean, it's function is so degraded. And I think that's a good picture to consider when we're talking about adaptation, whether that adaptation is happening within a lifetime or in for, you know, down uh, hereditarily into future generations. And again, you, you mentioned epigenetics and that is where that's coming into play. I mean, we're turning on and off different genes and, activating all these various proteins. And I think the biggest factor to consider here is that is that big picture where when we are adapting to things that are harmful, we become better at handling harmful things at the cost of higher structure and greater complexity. And so there are a lot of epigenetic adaptations to that. And, and we see that in humans when we look at what's happened in populations that were that had significant starvation. And then you look down the line and they you know, then they're more prone to obesity, you know, the children are and, and beyond or, uh, you know, rat and, and cat studies where they've put them under some stress. And then they look a couple generations down and they see that there's kind of degeneration going on. So there are epigenetic effects to when we're adapting to anything, whether it's bad or, or good. But when we are adapting to these harmful things, I would say that they're generally negative. And Part of the problem here is that I know I talked about autophagy and mitochondrial biogenesis as a couple of those main things. I don't see those as, as harmful. So it is seen that in chronic health conditions and diseases, there are defects in autophagy. And, uh, you know, it's, it is seen that, that uh, but at the same time, what's important to consider too is that in those diseases, there's also excessive stress. There's also excessive reactive oxygen species production. So if we're under this idea that a small amount of stress is good and leads to, to these benefits, yet excessive stress leads to defects in these sorts of, of, um, of autophagy and, and kind of adaptations, uh, it, I look at that as, as a good example for the fact that we want those adaptations to be working properly. We want to be able to increase autophagy when we're exposed to stress. And if we drive too far in that route, we kind of lose our ability to adapt. But 
rather than wanting to stimulate autophagy directly by causing stress, we can actually do it through alternative means. And again, this is, it's, it comes down to some of the like biochemistry here in some of the details, but, but we also end up seeing reactive oxygen species production when we're producing a lot of energy as kind of like a, a breaking mechanism. So that's normally why it's there in the first place is that when we're under stress and we're not able to produce energy efficiently, we turn off that system because if we produce too many of these reactive oxygen species, we end up with a ton of damage and destruction. So it's, it's like this, uh, this signal, like this alarm signal. But the signal also happens if we're producing a lot of energy and we have enough where we kind of have this excessive end product of ATP that's stopping everything up earlier in the line. And that also leads to reactive oxygen species production and stops or slows down respiration, switches it over to fat oxidation and, and slows it down with all these braking systems. But in this case, there's a major difference, which is that we're protected by the higher levels of ATP and higher levels of carbon dioxide and higher energy state of the cell. And that protects us against any damage from the reactive oxygen species and allows us to still have things like mitochondrial biogenesis and autophagy and improve our ability to not adapt to harm, but actually improve our, our capacity for greater energy and greater structural complexity. But without any of these, uh, without any of these other signals that often come in the form of stress hormones. So, when you have the high reactive oxygen species and low energy, you have the AMPK signals going on, you eventually have adrenaline and cortisol going on, and those all lead to long-term depression of thyroid and pro-metabolic hormones. Whereas when you have high energy and elevated reactive oxygen species, you don't have all those stress signals, you just have those adaptations that we're looking for that are defective in these chronic diseases, uh, but without the 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 kind of harmful effects that lead to all those epigenetic, you know, partially epigenetic adaptations and also non-epigenetic adaptations. But that's a major, it's, it's a major difference, just that the presence of energy and the lack of presence of those stress signals. And I would say that that's really where we see the major difference physiologically between something that we're adapting to that's stressful and harmful and requires us to conserve energy and kind of decrease our structure so we can handle whatever's there as opposed to something that supports us energetically, allows our bodies to say, hey, I don't need to conserve energy right now. I, my environment's great. I can kick up all of, my, all of my functions, my thyroid function, my reproductive function, my digestive function. I can send blood out to my hands and feet so that they can stay warm as opposed to needing to keep them in our internal you know, areas, our internal organs, so that way they can stay warm. Uh, all, all those things that kind of go together and, and support that higher energy state as opposed to driving towards the lower one. Definitely. Do you think that that is responsible for the association that people see between calorie surpluses and inflammation? Um, meaning the, the high energy, but also some reactive oxygen species production. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. I, you know, one other factor when it comes to caloric restriction and caloric surplus is what are the foods? And I think that's a major issue when it comes to a lot of the caloric restriction researches, they found that, yeah, there's all these you know, benefits there, but you also get those benefits when you just restrict the inflammatory amino acids. You know, you also get those benefits when you, when you reduce endotoxin, you also get those benefits when you reduce PUFA. And all of those things are shown to be correlated with lifespan and disease. So is it, I guess you could flip that too with the caloric surplus, where the question is, is it the caloric surplus or is it what those calories are made up of? Uh, I think that that's more of, of what it is, is we have a defective metabolism and you add in more fuel to that fire as opposed to a well-functioning metabolism where when you add more fuel, it, it's, it just keeps it running. You know, it keeps it running at a higher level. Uh, I don't know what, if there was something specific you were referring to as far as caloric surplus and inflammation, but I think that that's when it comes to like the rat research and stuff like that, I think that's more of how I would see it. Definitely. No, that answers my question perfectly. Um, one other thing that I'm kind of curious about is like, what if somebody is trying to um, strengthen the buffer that they have to the stress over time? So um, whether it's increasing work capacity for a certain amount of exercise to take place or just increasing their buffer on a daily basis to the stress that they face. 
Yeah. So we have, again, kind of these two paths here around one path. It's getting used to the stress more and getting more acquainted with it versus on the other side, when we're supporting the energy producing systems, we also end up with a greater energy pool, a greater energy availability, which means that we have more to pull from before we're causing stress. So I would kind of prefer to go that latter route. And, and as far as how that looks, I mean, some of this does come down to specific effects too, where you are strengthening your musculofascial system, those connections and the strength there. And there's actually a couple different types of, of uh, muscular building. And one in particular tends to go more with stress and the other tends to go more with lower stress. And that one with the less stress has to do with more protein building, whereas the other one has to do with more, slightly more swelling and increased resources, more fuel in the, in the muscle cells. And so uh, that protein one, which is the myofibrillar, the, I would say that those adaptations are going to happen due to the specific effects. So what, for example, if you're lifting weights, because you are ad adapting to, to that stimulus, you are going to have improved, like increased protein, uh, uh, concentration in, in those areas, like building up that protein of, you know, of the muscle cells, you're also going to have increased neuromuscular tone and, and ability to contract contractility there, which is actually one of the main uh, factors responsible for increases in strength when people first start working out. You know, when you watch someone work out and they go from only being able to you know, bench 20 pounds to 60 in, in six weeks, it's not because they put on all this muscle. Of course, they might be putting on some, but most of it's a neuromuscular connection. So those things are all strengthening and those are independent of stress. They're just specific to the stimulation. And so I would say that we, that's really what we want to be going for when it would become, when you would want to be in improving work capacity, uh, as opposed to improving capacity towards stress. So I guess another way I would say it is that I think it ideal, it's more ideal health wise to be trying to improve our capacity for something like strength than to be able to handle something like excessive stress. So I think that the only way you're going to improve your ability to run super long distances is to create adaptations to that stress. I just think that there's a cost there. Somebody wants to do it, that's fine. But I think we want to recognize that cost there too. And you can minimize that cost by improving your resilience to the stress, making sure you're getting a lot of fuel, all of that. But uh, there is a cost just by wanting to adapt to that. If we wanted to adapt to living in the tundra, we can, people do it. And they have epigenetic adaptations, genetic adaptations, all sorts of, of really interesting things. But it also, I would argue, comes at the cost of less structural complexity in the long term. So it depends on what we're trying to adapt to. But in the case of specifically work capacity, it depends on if it's more dependent on kind of strength and, and function as opposed to um, needing to deal with stress and resilience. One other factor there too is economy. So with runners, for example, they become more economic with the way they run as they, as they continue to practice. So they end up having less stress and requiring less energy to do the same amount of work. So that's another factor there too, um, that will improve just by continuing to, uh, adapt to those things. Interesting. So, um, whenever it comes to resistance training specifically, do you tend to see a difference between eccentric and concentric muscle contractions? Cause I believe within the concentric part of the contraction, there's an anabolic effect with a testosterone response. And then the eccentric effect is a catabolic response due to the cortisol response. Do you kind of uh, have any tips there? Yeah. And of course you can't always minimize one or the other. I mean, a lot of movements have aspects of both, but I do think that the eccentric leads to more of the, uh, that kind of stress response and, and, and adaptation, which can lead to big muscles, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily functional muscles. It doesn't mean it's overall as healthy. Uh, so I do think to whatever extent you can, I guess you could say favoring the concentric. Another way to put it would just be not doing focused eccentric work where you're going super slow for four seconds down or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I do think probably sticking, just not focusing on the eccentric is, is better Definitely. for health. Yeah. yeah. What about, the ability to increase mental capacity or the ability to work more with the mind rather than physical. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's this funny study when I was looking through all the, re- the hormesis research where they were saying that, hey, this applies to the brain too. When the brain's under stress, it responds and, and improves its capacity. And one of the studies they cited was looking at uh, elderly people in some sort of a retirement home or nursing home or something, and was saying that when they're reading books and playing cards, their neurological capacities increased. And they were saying that that was a sign of hormesis, that these things were causing stress. <laughs> it just kind of is, it just goes to show how much they've kind of morphed this definition and how convoluted it's become. But I don't, you know, in, in that I don't think that those things are quite all that stressful. And I think that to attribute those benefits to, to the stress caused by playing cards, even the physiological stress, I think is kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I, I think it, it applies in the same way where, you know, stimulating those neurological connections in whatever capacity, I think, leads to adaptations that leads to improvement there. I think we don't necessarily, I mean, I don't, some people kind of have the same idea where it's like, if you use it, if you don't use it, you lose it. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that having improved brain capacity is a part of improved complexity. And considering that, I think that it should be something that improves, I guess, even if you weren't stimulating it, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that would work. I mean, it's not like something you could see in practice, but I do think having stimulation is good. I think that, for example, if we're under a lot of psychological stress, I don't think that's going to be leading to uh, us becoming smarter. For example, I think it'll lead to you maybe getting more quote unquote resilience. Sometimes that again comes at the cost of being able to tap into your emotions or being able to think real clearly or think about higher level things. Um, we will adapt to that stress. I don't think that's what we really want to be going for though. I don't know if that answered your question. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I think this was also one of the things that I talked about with, in my conversation with Billy was, um, he said that during starvation periods, the brain can shrink up to 2%. So Hmm. if you're in caloric restriction, you can actually, the brain actually shrinks to where you only have the capabilities of the more primordial parts of the brain and the complexity and abstraction, uh, kind of diminishes as the brain shrinks in size, which makes a lot of sense. Um, it's also kind of interesting. I, have you seen any of the research in regards to um, the brain taking up 80% of the metabolism whenever it's in states of basically like a flow state? I haven't seen that. You know, interestingly, I, I was looking into that and some of the research that I found, which there isn't all that much, um, was actually saying that whether our brain's active or not, it ends up using about the same amount of fuel or the same percentage of fuel. I don't know if that's, I mean, I'd be interested to see something that shows otherwise for sure. Um, I ha- yeah, I haven't, but I haven't seen that, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was some uptick in activity. I mean, even without, even without any increase, our brain already uses, I think around 20 to 25% of our total um, caloric needs, if you want to think of it that way, but just our total fuel, which is of course a massive amount proportionately. I think proportionately, it's only about 2% of our total uh, body. So yeah, I mean, as far as caloric restriction and, and brain health, that, that definitely doesn't surprise me that it would shrink and capacity would shrink. I mean, uh, if you look at the, the Minnesota starvation experiment and what happened to those, their mental capacity when they were eating 1800 calories a day, as opposed to the regular 3,300, maybe 1600 calories, uh, you know, they were not the same people at all. I mean, they were, uh, they, a lot of them were like failing their classes or weren't even able to go. They couldn't hold up relationships. They had no sense of humor. They had no interest in sex. They had no libido, which I mean, and, and it went beyond that too. I mean, they were, they were, some of them had psychotic breaks and would do, I mean, you talked about kind of more primordial things. I mean, some of them ended up stealing from like stealing food from trash cans and yeah, I mean, it, it completely changes our mental capacity. That's for sure. Definitely. Um, so I guess kind of taking another direction for a second, um, one of the things that I would like to get your opinion on is the adaptation that we have to um, becoming a fat burner versus, a, you know, utilizing glucose as fuel. Can you kind of take us through that transition and why it might not be favorable? Yeah. So in, in line with that kind of bioenergetic lens, I think it always makes the most sense to start on that energetic level and what's actually happening there. Basically, I would say that fat is much less efficient as a fuel and 
there's biochemical reasons for that that I'll mention. And also, we there's other kind of evidence to support this, just the idea that our brains can't use fat. They have to rely on glucose or ketones, which we'll get to ketones. But uh, the short of it, just looking at sugar versus fat, um, fat would cause way too, way too much uh, reactive oxygen, species production, and cause too many breaks in mitochondrial respiration to be supportive of of our brain energy needs, which as we said, it, those energy needs are pretty high. And so it's, it's kind of a good model to look at as far as uh, what things look like when they need to function well, whereas other areas of our body can deal with lower energy. But uh, yeah, so when we're looking on that biochemical level and that physiological level of what's actually happening when we use one versus the other for fuel, when we use glucose for fuel, assuming that we've got the nutrients we need, there's no breaks on the system from polyunsaturated fats or endotoxin or anything else. Uh, everything runs very smoothly, quickly. There's nothing stopping that process unless we produce so much ATP that we don't need anymore. We produce a lot of NAD, which keeps our NAD to NADH ratio high, which keeps the electron transport chain functioning well. We also produce a lot of CO2, which helps to increase uh, oxygen offloading into the cell, which allows for further increased respiration. So it's, it's a very cohesive system that, that basically allows us to produce a lot of energy. And when we have fat metabolism, we basically have the opposite. And there's very good reasons for that. You mentioned adaptation, where basically we need to have some sort of system that allows us to put on, put on the brakes. For example, if we're not eating, you know, if you're not eating carbs, that's one thing, but low carb metabolism is the same as starvation metabolism. And when that happens, when we're starving, if we adapted to starvation by increasing the amount of energy we used, we would not last very long when we starved. So because of that, instead, when anytime we're in a suboptimal environment, but starvation is a pretty, pretty rough one, we have to slow down how much energy we're using, stop our thyroid from functioning as much, stop our reproductive hormones, slow everything down. We can deal with the cold hands and feet. So that way, uh, so that way we can survive. And so fat metabolism is basically the perfect picture of that, where there are a couple of differences. One is that there's less carbon dioxide being produced, which means less oxygenation, which is one way that there's kind of this break on the system. The other one is that we have a lot more FADH2 being produced, and that ends up basically there's some competition in the electron transport chain between the donation of electrons from NADH and the donation of electrons between FADH2, where they both use the same, they basically both rely on ubiquinone uh, availability. And so when you have a lot of FADH2 donating electrons, it slows down the drop off of electrons from NADH and leads to a buildup of NADH, which decreases the NAD to NADH ratio. And that then has effects all throughout, like higher up in the uh, energy producing processes to slow things down because the availability of NAD helps to drive, basically speed things up. And so when you have this excess NADH, it puts all these other breaks on the system and, uh, which happens during fat metabolism. And that's another way that things are slowed down on that immediate energy level. And it also increases the production of reactive oxygen species at the same time, which leads to some of those adaptations we talked about earlier. It does lead to autophagy. It does lead to mitochondrial biogenesis, these kinds of backup pathways uh, that are there to kind of help us survive these. Uh, in this case, they're there to help us survive these rough times. So starting from that energetic level. And, and it's important to note here too, whenever we look at something like fat metabolism in the short term, you see those breaks, you see the slowing down of respiration, then there's always an adaptive effect, like a, I mean, it is an adaptation, but there's always a rebound effect where if your body is still needing to function at first, it's like, Hey, I still need energy. And it basically has all these backup pathways. One of them is through sirtuins or cert, you know, SIRT certs. Um, but sirtuins are known as like longevity promoting um, proteins. But it's basically a backup pathway to, to fix the low NAD to NADH ratio from fat metabolism and any other stress. So you have the activation of all these backup pathways to bring that NAD to NADH ratio back up so you can still produce energy because especially in the short term, our body's like, it might be a little bit of stress, but we can get through it. And so initially you, you kind of see this dampening effect and then a rebound effect. And then in the long term, you just see the dampening effect. It just has that long-term cost. But Again, that short-term rebound is why some people say it's beneficial. But again, I would argue that that you still have the long-term effect too. It's just smaller. And if you continue for a longer period of time, it's going to show. Even if you're doing it for a short period of time, you're not going to have a benefit. You're just going to have a 
kind of that stress hormone response. And that's another part of it too. That's why people sometimes will feel good when they switch to fat metabolism is they've got that adrenaline going. So starting, so that's where all those kind of adaptations start. And then again, big picture, we have this increased stress hormone production, which is the mediator that tells our bodies things are not good right now. If this continues for any longer, we have to start shutting everything down. And so that's eventually what you get when you're adapting to fat metabolism and fat burning. Yeah. Uh, we tend to call that the catecholamine honeymoon is that, sure. yeah. that first like 30 to 60 days where people feel really good. And then after that, it's usually pretty downhill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But so can you kind of go through some of the similarities that this fat burning state has with a caloric restriction? Yeah. So it's basically, you know, they, they really mimic each other where if we don't have any food, we start to shift in the same way. So anytime that we see energy depletion, starting on that cellular level, we have the activation of all of these signals. You have AMP kinase, which is saying there's no ATP around. You've typically got reactive oxygen species production, which says that there's some kind of stress or damage. And it activates all these pathways that activate stress hormones. And those stress hormones lead to a couple of things. For one, they decrease so in the short term, some days they'll increase, for the first thing they'll try to do is increase glucose release from the liver. So that way we can still maintain some glucose metabolism. If that is not enough to immediately solve what's going on, then they say, all right, we got to start increasing fat metabolism. You start to pull fat from our body fat stores. And the, if that's still going on and that's not enough to, uh, to deal with that immediate energy problem, which is nonstop if you're starving or calorically restricting, like just minor starvation, it's going to keep happening. And then if it's so much to the point that um, there's still enough of still not enough food available, then especially for the brain, if there's not enough glucose, they'll start to lead to ketone production in the liver, which again is driven by stress hormones and just as part of that backup system. So you basically have the same amount or, or the same response. It's just a matter of to what extent sometimes it can be to a much greater extent with low carb versus just a small amount of caloric restriction. It kind of depends. But in both cases, you're having these same stress responses that are happening due to the low energy on that cellular level, leading to those stress signals, leading to the kind of bigger cell, the bigger mediators being the stress hormones, glucagon, epinephrine, cortisol, and then eventually it continues branching out from there. Interesting. So, um, one of the things that I was kind of curious about is how people tend to see an increase in insulin sensitivity whenever they're in a caloric deficit. But at the same time, from a logical perspective to me, the increase in the amount of free fatty acids in the blood would lead to more of the Randall cycle happening. Mm -hmm. um, so do you kind of know what's going on in, in that pathway right there? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things. One is that insulin drives down the stress hormones and drives down free fatty acids. And so would glucose, partially by stimulating insulin production. So if you're starving and then you take in some carbohydrates, that's going to increase insulin, drop all those stress hormones, stop gluconeogenesis, stop all that fat release and drive down free fatty acids and allow for the uptake of, of the glucose. So uh, it's, it's basically like, because you're in that low fuel stress state, you're more ready to take up the, the carbs. And the same thing happens even if we're just fasting overnight, which we all do when we sleep, it's much less stressful because our demands are much lower. Uh, but that's why when we wake up, we tend to be pretty insulin sensitive too. And we tend to have a lot of carb cravings. And that same thing is, you know, after we exercise, basically when our, when our carbs are depleted, we're very sensitive to um, our need for more carbs. And it's still mediated through those same stress hormones, but basically you have this dropping of stress hormones very quickly and dropping of free fatty acids. The other thing too, is that insulin, insulin sensitivity has, I mean, free fatty acids are part of it, but it also has to do with the uh, ability to uptake glucose. So I, I think in some situations, the high free fatty acids are more correlated with, uh, with insulin resistance rather than rather than being causative. It is true that with the Randall cycle, you only have basically one choice. You're either using fat or carbs and both prevent the other from kind of functioning at the same time in, in one cell, not necessarily throughout the body. Uh, but 
that, I mean, it can switch back and forth very easily. And, and if the cell is basically very low on glucose and able to metabolize it, it's going to be taking it up and switching right, right back over um, if it has it available. Normally, the problem with insulin resistance is not high free fatty acids first. Normally, there's something else blocking its ability to use carbs. So then we have to increase free fatty acids as that backup pathway. And yes, then it's just focusing on free fatty acids as, uh, as its fuel. But once, uh, once, carb, once our carb metabolism is somewhat fixed and you've got those carbs available, it's going to switch right, switch right back. Okay, interesting. So what is kind of your perspective on being fat adapted? So the ability to kind of flirt with that line and jump back and forth across it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny just because it's, there's this idea you, like fat at, being fat adapted and metabolic flexibility too, where the, the thing that I think is funny there is the idea that you have to do something in order to be able to metabolize fats when that's kind of our default backup state. Like nobody is just running on carbs because they can't run on fat. Uh, if anything, it's the other way around. They would be just running on fat because they can't run on carbs. Uh, carbs are, there's a lot more factors that can be limiting it. And, and if you're low on energy, you're always going to be tending towards the fat side anyway, due to all those stress signals. So um, yeah, I would say that kind of fat metabolism is that default backup state. And again, that doesn't mean that we can't be using any fat at any time and that that's always a bad thing. For example, our muscles don't need a lot of energy when they're just hanging out when we're just at rest. And so they're fine using a decent amount of fat and Fat is used for various other things too. So I'm not anti-fat. I'm just, uh, I think it's just not as good at producing high levels of energy in, in a short period of time. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I think normally when people are talking about that, it more really has to do with impaired carb metabolism. And often there's some gut issues there, but we should always kind of be able to use either fuel. But as we've talked about, we don't really want to adapt to using fat as our, as our main fuel. There's, there's a big cost there. And just because we can do it doesn't mean it's good for us in our long run or good for our, you know, descendants and human gener you know, human species in the long run. I think that that's going to lead to a lot of adaptations to basically having less energy and, and those don't tend to go in the direction that we, that we want them to. Definitely. I completely agree. Um, well, Jay, I won't take up too much more of your time today. I really appreciate you hopping on here and talking to everybody. Where can people find you and follow you and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's fun. Uh, my website's jfeldmanwellness.com. I've got a bunch of articles and, and uh, like free things on there. And uh, a couple of those articles are dealing with hormesis. They're pretty long and kind of really digging into all the research for anyone who's interested. And then I also have a podcast called the energy balance podcast. You can find it from my website or you can just search it anywhere that you listen to podcasts and um, yeah, check it out. Heck yeah. Sweet. Well, for all of those of you listening, make sure to check out his podcast because I personally do listen to it consistently on Spotify. So make sure to check it out. I enjoy it. Um, and I know y'all will too. So y'all have a good one. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to hit the like button, subscribe, and leave a comment down below if you want us to cover a different topic.